Hey, it's Nathan, and this is day 55 of the Bible in 90 Days. We're in Jeremiah chapters 1 through 10. First, a brief introduction. As you may remember from episode 50, Isaiah's ministry ended with the reign of Manasseh, the Judean king whose reign was morally devastating for his people. It's notable, by the way, that he's also the first king to reign after the demise of the kingdom of Israel at the hands of the Assyrians. You'll find that uh, incident, at least the demise of the kingdom of Israel, in 2 Kings 17 and 18. Manasseh's 55-year reign is followed by an equally rebellious son, Ammon. After just two years, Ammon's son, Josiah, takes the throne at only eight years old. He's a courageous reformer, and it's in the 13th year of his reign that Jeremiah, likely still in his teens, begins his ministry. Here's the important takeaway. Jeremiah's ministry is a desperate effort to arrest the moral freefall introduced and nurtured during Manasseh's depraved reign. In spite of Jeremiah's courage and the dedicated king, Josiah, the situation is nearly hopeless, a sense we pick up in Jeremiah's prophetic ministry. Let's begin with chapter 1. By the way, a chapter you should read, it introduces us to Jeremiah with the story of his call to ministry. The first words God spoke to Jeremiah, at least as recorded here, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah pushes back that he doesn't know how to speak and that he's too young. God then touches Jeremiah's lips, saying, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah then sees two things. First, an almond tree, and second, a boiling pot tilting toward God's people. These images are said to demonstrate, first, that God's word would be fulfilled, and second, that trouble is headed for the kingdom of Judah. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. The final line of promise to the young prophet in the chapter, they will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you. Chapter 2, by the way, a chapter you should read as well, records Jeremiah's first prophecy to the people. It begins, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not shown. Heartbreaking. Those lines I just read, along with the following lines, illustrate the essence of God's case against his people. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. This is followed by God's response. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. My people have committed two sins. 
They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Tucked near the end point of the chapter is this insightful, revealing sentence. Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God. The following section of the chapter is an impassioned description of Israel's fierce love affair with the pagan gods of the nations, reporting Israel's attitude in these words, I love foreign gods and I must go after them. As a result, disaster was to come upon them. Chapter 3 is summed up well in the opening lines. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? The entire chapter is focused on this point. Israel and Judah selling themselves to foreign gods and being wildly unfaithful to God. One of the lines from the chapter is especially insightful in understanding God's assessment of Judah. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. A final few lines from the chapter demonstrate God's deep love for his people in spite of their persistent rebellion. How gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. Chapter 4 is represented well in these lines. This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. What follows is a sober warning of judgment coming from the north and a call to repent. The chapter continues, a besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. The chapter also includes the expression of great anguish at the coming disaster and the incessant trumpet blast of the approaching enemy, declaring, my people are fools. They do not know me. The last section of the chapter is a dark, apocalyptic vision of near-total devastation. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Chapter 5 begins with a search for one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth. If such can be found, the city will be forgiven. No one is found anywhere. The chapter then details the people's determined rebellion and declares again that devastation is coming. Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. 
A few lines at the end of the chapter paint the dire picture of God's rebellious people. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? Chapter 6 begins with a declaration that disaster looms out of the north, even terrible destruction. This is followed by a declaration to build siege ramps because this city must be punished. It is filled with oppression. The chapter continues, declaring that God's people won't listen and respond to warning, and that, from the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain, prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. This is followed by another devastating warning of coming disaster. Look, an army is coming from the land of the north. They are armed with bow and spear. They are cruel and show no mercy. In chapter 7, by the way, a chapter you must read. In that chapter, chapter 7, Jeremiah is instructed to stand before the Lord's house and proclaim. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. What did reform mean? Deal with each other justly. Do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. Do not follow other gods to your own harm. The primary issue God is dealing with in chapter 7 is a cocky sense of invincibility among his people. All, while in justice and pagan worship, were pervasive. They went through the motions of loyalty to God while doing evil to their neighbors. The opening verses declare that God's people have refused to follow his instructions and do what is right. As God reasons with his people, he challenges them. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. The fall of Israel was to be an eye-opening warning to the people of Judah to change their course and thus avoid a similar fate. In a startling line, Jeremiah is told, Do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? That last question, by the way, is a reference to the horrific pagan worship practices taking place. Then this insightful line, Am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? The final lines of this chapter become quite dark. The carcasses of this people will become food for the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. Chapter 8 begins, At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings and officials of Judah, the bones of the priests and prophets, and the bones of the people of Jerusalem will be removed from their graves. 
Most of the chapter describes God being baffled, in a sense, by Israel's determination not to listen. In spite of the suffering, their actions have already caused them. And yet, through all of this, God's heart yet aches for his people. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? Chapter 9 continues this theme of heartbreak. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers so that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. A few verses in, God asks this question. What else can I do because of the sin of my people? Why has the land been ruined and laid waste like a desert that no one can cross? The Lord said, It is because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them. They have not obeyed me or followed my law. Women are called to wail and teach their daughters to wail because of the disaster that's coming, which will leave dead bodies strewn across the land like cattle dung. Then there are these poignant lines. Let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Chapter 10, by the way, you should read chapter 10 as well. It's a declaration against the foolishness of idolatry contrasted with the powerful reality of the living God. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them. For the practices of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. The chapter then warns of coming destruction that will make the towns of Judah desolate, a haunt of jackals. The final lines of the chapter are a prayer by Jeremiah for God to act, both in his life and against the nations. And that's all for today.